Hi. This month's episode of Random Walk is kind of a downer. On November 21st, Steve Buist of the Hamilton Spectator broke a story. And if you're from Hamilton, you probably know exactly what story I'm talking about. Hell, if you're anywhere from southern Ontario, you probably heard the story. And as much as I'd wish to tell you there's a happy ending on this episode, there really isn't. But I think there is hope. Stay with me. Hi, welcome to Random Walk, a podcast about stuff I stumble upon. I'm your host, Adam. And actually, welcome to Hamilton, Ontario. For a long time, Hamilton has had a reputation for being a gritty, failing steel town with one of the highest crime rates in Ontario. But that really hasn't been my experience. Maybe I missed that era, but when I moved to Hamilton about five years ago, I saw an up-and-coming, mid-sized city with an active arts community, ambitious food scene, and more than its share of natural beauty. It's only 45 minutes from Toronto, but feels completely separate. It's wrapped on one side by the Niagara Escarpment and sits on the shore of Lake Ontario. The city is split by Highway 403 with McMaster University to the west of the highway and the downtown core and steel plant to the east. On the west side, around Highway 403 and McMaster, is one of my favorite places in the city. There's a set of wooded trails and bridges here along the shore of Lake Ontario that carries you over untouched marsh and wetland. The marsh is part of the Coots Paradise Nature Reserve, and these lands represent 99% of the unaltered lands along the local Lake Ontario shoreline. The site is a national historic site, a nationally important bird area, and an important amphibian and reptile area, but despite the heavy protections, much of the area is open for exploring. Personally, I spend a lot of time running and cycling along the waterfront trails. In fact, you can travel from the far west end of Hamilton, near McMaster, all the way to the steel plant in the east, going through the marshes of Coots Paradise and along the waterfront trails of Lake Ontario. While beautiful, Coots Paradise always struck me as kind of strange, but I could never really understand why. Maybe it was the 403 that would occasionally come into view as you followed some of the more superficial trails. Or how you'd always hear the sound of traffic before you saw it. Maybe it was the unusually opaque water, or the one little inlet you'd go by that always had a few dead fish in it. Or maybe how four or five years ago the Do Not Swim advisory in the Hamilton Harbor silently turned from a seasonal warning to the harbor's permanent state. On November 21st, Steve Buist of the Hamilton Spectator broke a story that kind of explains everything. Sewage has been slowly draining into Coots Paradise constantly since 2014. Estimates say about 24 billion liters of raw sewage has entered Coots Paradise since 2014. Maybe the worst part of this whole thing is that the city council knew about it and voted in favor of hiding this information from the public. Since then, the Hamilton Spectator published a handful of updates and opinions on the story, and this is where I'm going to say, please support local journalism. The role of journalism and news media in a community is crucial, whether you personally decide to read it or not. Without supporting this industry, we would not have people keeping our elected officials accountable, and that's what this episode is really all about. While a lot of this story is still unknown, here are the things we do know. On January 28, 2014, for reasons unknown, a bypass gate on an underground tank under Cathedral Park was left cracked open, allowing sewage to escape for the next four years. 
On November 14, 2015, Kristen Villebrun and Wendy Brush began a floating protest on a raft in the harbor to draw attention to needles, tampons, and feces piling up on the shore. From May to June in 2018, a series of bacteria-ridden water samples over several weeks set off alarm bells for Royal Botanical Gardens, which manages Coots Paradise. The RBG alerts the city of Hamilton. On July 6th, resident John Boddy, disgusted with the odor wafting off Chidopi Creek, calls the Ministry of Environment, Conservation, and Parks, which visited the site and coordinated testing. On July 9th, Public Health informs the province of testing results showing E. coli levels of 3.4 million bacterial units per 100 milliliters. The RBG removes its canoe docks from Princes Point, and Public Health posted warning signs around the area. On July 12th, City issues press release warning of contamination in Chidoki Creek. The City, Province, and Hamilton Conservation Authority begin investigation into the source of sewage. On July 18th, Council is told the City has discovered and closed the open gate on the combined sewer overflow tank. A media release tells the public that a sewage spill occurred, but includes no details about volume or duration. On July 31st, the City completes two weeks of vacuum cleaning, removing 242,000 liters of floatables out of the creek. On August 2nd of 2018, the province ordered the city to do an ecological impact assessment and come up with a remediation plan for the spill, and to post the order in a conspicuous place. The city put the order in a staff-only treatment plant control room. It did not tell the public. On September 26th, the city formally learns that the province's investigative branch has taken over the spill probe. On January 16th of 2019, councillors learned in a confidential report that 24 billion litres of sewage spilled out over four years. Council voted to keep all new information about the spill secret for legal reasons. On January 31st, the city submitted an ecological spill impact report for Chidoki Creek to the province, but neither level of government made the information public. On September 4th, councillors got another confidential report talking about conflicting findings and recommendations about remediation, including a dredging plan that could cost $2 million. Council again voted for secrecy. On September 6th, the province denies the spectator's freedom of information request for reports and studies on the Chidoki Creek sewage spill, citing the ongoing investigation. On November 14th, the province issued a new order, which was also kept secret, because the city had not met the requirements of the original, a new deadline, February 14th, 2020, is looming. And finally, on November 20th, the Spectator reveals Council has been deliberately hiding the magnitude and duration of this spill. So the story's incomplete, but we as a community have to take a step back and try to figure out what there is we can do to fix this, and seriously consider who in our community we want to trust with such important decisions. If this pisses you off, that's good, it really should. But it's important to use this anger and disappointment constructively. For example, Cameron Croach has started a petition to launch a public inquiry into the story. From his website, It's clear that public trust between Hamiltonians and their municipal government has been completely broken in the wake of the stunning revelation that Chidoki Creek and Coots Paradise have been flooded with 24 billion liters of mixed sewage for more than four years. While technicians within the provincial government look into the ecological disaster, it's our responsibility as residents to hold our local government accountable for covering it up. It is clear that they are not willing to be transparent and forthcoming about everything they knew based on their attempts to keep the magnitude of this disaster from the public. 
We may never have learned of the magnitude of the leak if it weren't for the brave actions of a whistleblower. This petition asks that City Council launch a public judicial inquiry as soon as possible to investigate what happened, who knew, and when they knew, including a full and thorough investigation of the cover-up from when the spill started to the day that the Hamilton Spectator broke the story. An investigation must also include the suppression of any information leading up to the 2018 municipal election and any impacts that suppression may have had on the outcome. It's our responsibility as members of the community to ask these sort of questions, but we can also act. And in the second half of the show, I'd like to introduce you to someone who has done exactly that in her own community. Thea Kozakis is a climate scientist finishing her PhD at Cornell and a member of the Sunrise Movement. Cornell is in Ithaca, which Thea tells me is a fairly climate-conscious community. However, as she'll explain, City Council was letting the community down. So three of the Sunrise Movement members in Ithaca decided they would do something to keep them accountable. We recorded this interview on November 7th, two weeks before the news about Coot's Paradise broke, and I intended to share it on its own merits, since it's really an amazing story. But in light of recent events in Hamilton, it feels way more pressing and important to share it now. So here's Thea. My full name, as people struggle to pronounce, is Thea Kozakis. I'm a super Greek name. Yeah, I am in the last of my PhD at Cornell University, and I'm actually part of the Carl Sagan Institute here, and I study astrophysics and astrobiology. Here in Ithaca, New York, that's where Cornell is, so I've been living here for over six years. Um, Our version of city council is called the Common Council, and it has 10 people on it, And Ithaca is a pretty small city. It's only 35,000 people. A big part of the city's population is due to Cornell and then also Ithaca College is here. But a lot of the time, the Common Council members, they all have four-term years. So every two years, half the council is up for election. So they often run unopposed. So the Last election in 2017, people were actually running against each other for common council, and people thought it was because of, like, the recent presidential election, and, like, people were maybe being more engaged. But this year, all five members running were running unopposed. So that's part of why, like, I and, like, two other people from Sunrise decided to do these writing campaigns, because we had been going to a lot of the public hearings, and, you know, voicing our concerns about climate change. And we didn't, we were worried that we weren't really getting through to the council. And it was actually my friend, Ellie, who also ran, she decided to run first. And she's actually a freshman here at Cornell. So she's 18 years old. And she was like, she was saying like, they're not doing anything for climate change. Like, she says that she didn't feel like she had a choice, that she, like, had to do something. And I was like, wow, like, Ellie is 18 years old. She's, like, really putting herself out there. And I knew the city of Ithaca is broken up into five different wards, so each ward is two representatives. And I was like, well, I live in a different ward than Ellie, so, like, if she can do this, and, like, if she is doing it, 
Like, I should do it too. Like, I have no excuse. Like, <laughs> I'm like 28 years old. I'm basically a climate scientist. And it's like... Like, uh, your studies have sort of given you an arsenal to, to speak very uh, um, professionally about climate change. Yeah, and that's part of why I was like, I should really do something. Because I come from, like, like, I literally study Earth's climate for my job. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping that would give me some credibility. Unfortunately, yeah. um, the last time I spoke at a city council meeting, I, like, like, my friends from the Sunrise Movement, they're the ones who, like, organize, like, a lot of climate strikes in the U.S. and everything. They, like, got up there in the public hearing, and they talked about, like, policy changes that could help. And I was like, well, I'll speak to my strengths. I just got up there, and I was like, here's some scientific facts, because I'm a scientist. And after the meeting was over, one of the council members came up to me and was, like, very rude. And he just, like, told me he didn't, I couldn't, like, that I couldn't be a scientist. Like, he was just like, oh, you're really a scientist? No, you're not. And it's like, he just, like, looked at me and decided I couldn't be a scientist and that everything I said was wrong. That's absurd. I'm like, okay. So that was, I mean, it was just very frustrating. So it seems like Ithaca is actually pretty interested in, you know, getting carbon neutral or something. I'm I'm reading about this Green New Deal resolution that um, sort of passed recently. Yeah. So that's encouraging, but I guess that they weren't, doing enough what did you have specific issues with this that you were bringing up yeah so the sunrise movement when it started here in Ithaca the first thing that they did was they like did like this letter writing campaign to try to convince the mayor to sign on for a green new deal so that passed this past June and it was unanimous all the common council members voted for it and like it was a huge like victory for climate change because the um, the promises of the biggest Green New Deal are like going to be really hard to achieve. But it's like this is what we need to do. So like one of the main ones is being carbon neutral by 2030. So we were like, this is great. They all voted for it. They're all on board with it. But then as time was progressing, we realized that not all of them actually felt. To the Green New Deal. Hmm. So, in fact, that council member who decided just by looking at me that I couldn't be a scientist, when he and my friend Ellie, who also ran, were talking to him, we had said something along the lines of, like, well, you committed to this Green New Deal. And he was like, we didn't commit. And we were like, you voted for it. And he's like, we didn't. Like, he's repeated it several times, saying they did not commit to the promises of the Green New Deal that they're aspirational, that the council didn't commit to them. And we were upset by that because, you know... That's so slimy. For something, I would think that means you're committed. So we found out that at least one of the common council members... I mean, we had gotten the sense because basically what happened is when they proposed the budget for this coming year, they did put aside money for the Green New Deal, and they said they are going to hire a staffer for it, one staffer. And Sunrise looked at it and was like, that's not enough. Like, do you know what you just signed on for? For the city to become carbon neutral in 10 years, it's going to take a ton of resources. Mm-hmm. And it was just starting to become clear that although they all voted for it, it was unanimous. 
didn't actually yeah. plan on really doing it. I believe that some of them did. My friend Veronica, a few public hearings ago, actually, when she was speaking to them, she was like, let's take a poll. How many of you, like, raise your hand if you think climate change is a crisis? And, well, first, the Common Council was confused because they're like, oh, my God, the public can ask us questions? <laughs> and uh, half of them raised their hand. Half of them didn't. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, no. Because you need half plus one for anything to pass. So even though they signed on to the Green New Deal in June, we were just realizing, like, oh, my gosh, they thought, it sounds like half of them just thought it looked good. Yeah, it sounds like a good publicity thing or something like that. Yeah, so, I mean, they they literally said, we're not, this one person said, we're not committed to this. These are aspirations. We're not committed. And we were like, but you voted for it. (laughs) So, that's part of why. So we're actually, we feel like, if Ithaca did fulfill the promises of the Green New Deal, like, that's really good. Like, that's, we're not saying the Green New Deal in Ithaca needs to be, like, more ambitious. We're saying, you need to do this, and you voted for it. So we don't necessarily feel like we're being unreasonable. Yeah, it, it looks really good on paper, but like you said, it seems like it would be difficult to do with, with minimal funding. So so you weren't on the yeah. ballot. You were a write-in candidate. And that seems like it's a huge disadvantage um, <laughs> going into yeah. an election. Um, so Yeah, and I announced it less than two weeks before the election, <laughs> so there was another huge disadvantage. Yeah. So it seems sort of ambitious to hope to, to really win if that's sort of where you're, you're starting from. Um, would you say that that was your yeah. goal going in to win, or did you have some some sort of other um, priorities in doing this? Yeah, uh, that's a good question because a lot of people seem to a lot of people who have criticized me for this was like you obviously couldn't win. And I was like, yeah, I obviously couldn't win. And if I did win, also that would have been like, what is going on? In the city? <laughs> uh, so that's not why we did our writing campaign. So at this part of the interview, the call dropped, but uh, here, just a second. Hello? Hi. Okay, I think this is going to work this time. <laughs> and if it doesn't, oh, okay. then I can maybe rethink something and, and get back to you, but... Okay. I hope this is going to yeah, be it. sorry, that's really frustrating. So you, you had this awesome platform while you were campaigning that you, you were mm-hmm. able to, you know, speak to a lot of people, and clearly a lot of people are very interested. So sort of where, where yeah. do you think this goes from here? Um, I've been thinking about that a lot. So, like, we are trying to talk more to the Common Council now, of course. They are taking us more seriously now. Like last night. They did vote, like, one of the people that we ran against had proposed an amendment to the budget a few days ago to put more money into the Green New Deal, even though two weeks ago they are like, this will never happen ever. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's funny that now you care. Also, the three people 
we ran against, well, I think the person I was running against actually did care a lot about climate change. Mm-hmm. And, like, he had actually reached out to me this past weekend because I had met him before. And we're, like, pretty much the same age. He's, um, he's the youngest person on the council. So he had reached out to me this past weekend and said that no matter what happened on Tuesday, he wanted us to, like, be allies moving forward and, like, fight for climate change. And we had, like, a really good conversation. And that's when I was like, you know, I'm not interested in taking your seat. I want to raise awareness because he actually used to do, like, door-to-door climate change stuff. Although I think it really, really helped him to be reminded how much he cared. Because before... Miele and Cheyenne announced their writing campaigns, like, no one on Common Council was campaigning. And what was the point? They were all running unopposed. Mm-hmm. So, and also this year, we actually had someone run against our mayor. So another weird thing about Ithaca politics is we've had the same mayor for a while, and he almost always runs unopposed. He's like, he's a good guy. He's a good mayor. But... I firmly believe that every election should always be contested because you should always, no matter how great you are, I feel like you should always have to reprove to your constituents why you're the best person to lead them. Like, the mayor is actually really supportive of the Green New Deal, which is great. Um, A few public hearings ago, like, after the public hearing, like, we all get up there and talk, and then, like, the council meeting happens, and they don't acknowledge anything we said. But the mayor actually decided to respond to us a few meetings ago saying, you're right, we're not doing enough for climate change, which was really, really great. But he also is telling us, like, we need to get Cornell on board. Like, Cornell is a huge source of money. They're really not doing anything for this town. And sometimes, like, there's a huge housing crisis in Ithaca, uh, and a big part of it is because of Cornell. So we're trying to also figure out either we need to, like, make Cornell actually pay their taxes or another route we're pursuing right now is maybe trying to get Cornell to, like, make a donation to the Green New Deal because they might be more on board with that. Yeah. It won't be embarrassing for them. That looks a lot better on paper. Yeah. Yeah, so we're trying to, like, me and Ellie, who did these writing campaigns are Cornell students and something we did say like as part of our platforms is like we're part of Cornell like Cornell should be helping they Cornell has so much money it's ridiculous (laughs) so like they should we really want to see if we can get them because our current thinking is if we could get them to donate to the Green New Deal they might be way more on board with it with being like, what the hell, pay your taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, politically because, it seems like yeah. a, a great idea as well. I'm, I mean, I'm sure Cornell needs stuff from Ithaca in terms of, like, I don't know, zoning and stuff, etc. And you yeah. guys showed, like, your group itself showed that a significant fr- uh, fraction of the, the voting population want this thing. So... Yeah. If they play into no, that, then it seems like you should be able to connect everything here. And that's what we'd like to do, because we were saying before the election results came out, 
if we even made a dent in the votes, like, this is going to, like, it's going to mean that people obviously care so much about this issue because it's like, we had less than two weeks to spread awareness and you had to literally, you had to, and we also pointed out that our names were not easy to spell. <laughs> My friend Cheyenne, her last name is Carter. A lot of people apparently couldn't spell her first name though. Ellie's last name is Pfeffer and it starts with a P-F. Oh no. <laughs> so like, but every one in ten people in our wards wrote us in. Like, yeah. the fact that we even were able to reach 10% of those people, nearly 20% in Ellie's ward, is, like, crazy. And the fact that they decided to write us in, like, it just showed, like, when we talked to Cornell and the Common Council, it's like, the people of Ithaca really care about this. Because, yeah. again, like, we did not think we were going to win. That was, like, writing candidates, I think, almost never win. And, like, never, never if it's less than two weeks. Mm-hmm. But we did show it's, like, we got a huge amount of support. We got, like, a lot of press coverage, too, because, oh, first of all, a lot of people apparently care about this. Also, they're, like, there's nothing else to report on this election because <laughs> everyone's running unopposed. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, like, I guess you really showed. Yeah, you really yeah. showed the 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 politicians in your your town that they if they want to run on these sort of green platforms, they do have support. You kind of Im- yeah. gave like Stephen J. Smith. I'm reading here, kind of gave him the the a okay that yeah, if you want to do something green, Ithaca is going to support you, which I think is really yeah. powerful. And the council did make a statement last night after they voted for um, more things on the budget, including more money for the Green New Deal. They were saying how, like, it's so rare in the past, like, it's an anomaly to have so many members of the public show up and stay for a whole budget meeting because they care so much. (laughs) And the council is responding. They're like, wow, people really care. And I do think... So, yeah, there's people on the council, like the guy who says I'm not a scientist and is like, we didn't commit to the Green New Deal. But I do think some of the members are receptive. Also, you know, there's another, the other half of the council's up for election in two more years. And I would be shocked if there weren't people from the Sunrise Movement, like, on the ballot during that election. That would be amazing. That's going to be really exciting to follow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, so this is my my last year of my PhD. So this is also my last year in Ithaca applying for postdoc. So uh-huh. I am sad I'm not going to be here for that. I mean, no matter where I go next, I'm going to, you know, keep doing the same things. But I do think Ithaca is, yeah, becoming an interesting city to follow in terms of climate change. Also, the fact that, like, we made, like, dents in the votes with these writing campaigns, I think the people who are up for election in two years are realizing if they don't listen to their constituents, like, we will run against them. And we know what we're doing now, and we will get on the ballot and probably win, Mm -hmm. considering if you look at, like, this tiny baby version of what we just did. Like, next time it will be for real. So we're also hoping that will incentivize the council to care more. 
Because it's like, even if they're not receptive to our ideas, it's like, hopefully fear of losing your job. <laughs> that could help. That's usually a pretty good incentive, most of the time. <laughs> I think so. Cool. And so, like, even though there was no chance of us winning, the people we were running against did start to do more for the Green New Deal. Even though it's like, we obviously weren't going to win, they already were like, there are definitely some panic moves. So it's like, great! <laughs> this is what we want. That's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Thea for talking to me. You can follow her on Twitter at Thea Kozakis and me at Adam Forte. I spoke to her for nearly an hour about climate science and climate denial, but I had to cut some of it from the episode. If you want to hear the rest, you can join the Patreon. Oh yeah, we have a Patreon. These shows will always be free, but your support is important. Subscribers will have access to full interviews from various episodes, along with my personal notes on the show. Think of it as a behind-the-scenes thank you for helping me keep this thing going. All of this is at patreon.com slash And if you aren't already, follow Scientific Canada on your favorite podcasting app. We put out the Alma Mac, a show about graduate student research at McMaster, every week this show every month, and recently finished a show on McMaster Teaching Assistance Union's collective bargaining. Finally, a special thanks to Booney, who for some reason keeps letting me use their music for free. Check them out online at www.booney.rocks. 